Well, good morning, New City Church, and I just want to say uh, thanks for squeezing in this morning. I know there are more people in this room than, it, than it attended any Carolina Panthers football game all year this year, so thanks for, uh, for making room today. Hey, as I, was, I was again, uh, my freshman year in college, uh, first semester, I took this music tech class. So I originally went to college as a music major, and it was one of those things where once a week, we would you have to go in, and then the rest of the time, you could do all the, the assignments up on yourself. You had to go into the classroom because they had some, some technology stuff that, that we didn't have. And so, you know, it was really fascinating. I enjoyed it. And it got to the point where I was like a month ahead, like the whole semester, because I, I, you could do the assignments as you wanted. I, did, I finished the, the final project early, and it was fun. It was done. And then after all, the, we got all our grades in. I look at my grades for the, for the year, and I noticed I got a C in the class. And I was like, there's no way. Like, how in the world did I get a C? And so I reached out to the professor to find out he had given me a zero on my final project. And I'm like, what's happening? Well, come to find out, apparently my project was never submitted. So he gives me a zero, and I try to explain to him, and I'm, it's my freshman year, and like, I'm, I don't know what to do. I'm intimidated by all these people. So we go back and forth, and I was like, you can see all of my assignments were finished a month ahead of time. Do you really think I didn't do this assignment. And so as soon as he let me resubmit it, it was like submitted within a second. Long story short, the highest he would give me for the class was a B because he wouldn't give me higher than a C on the final project because he said I didn't turn it in on time. Now, regardless of whether there was like a problem on the technology side, as much as I could plead, like I did, I don't know what happened. He wouldn't change my grade because here's what he said I wanted and you didn't do it. And so it's kind of like, you're lucky I gave you a C. Now I share that because today as we continue our series, Controversial Jesus, we're going to look at something very controversial, uh, that Jesus says about himself, this idea of exclusivity, that he is the only way to God. And just like me with that music professor, maybe there's some things that make us uncomfortable or some things we want to argue with or say, hey, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that or, or like that. We're going to look at why Jesus says that and what this actually means. Now, there's Bibles and the seatbacks in front of you. All the scripture will be on the screen as well this morning. To begin, I just want to read a couple of, of the many, but a couple of Jesus' own claims about himself. So the first one is in John chapter 14. Jesus says this. He told, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus says he is not a truth or a way or a life, not I am one of many options. He says, I am the. What he's essentially saying here is that if you don't know me, if you don't know Jesus, then therefore you don't know God because to know Jesus is actually to know God. According to Jesus, these are not separate things, right? He's clearly claiming to be God here. Uh, A little bit later in John chapter 15, he says this, I am the true vine and my father, God God the father is the gardener. I am the vine, you are the branches, so that, that is people. You, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. And he withers. This kind of makes me think of a couple years ago, my wife Christina got into houseplants. Okay. And uh, earlier this, I guess what, late fall, early winter, when it started to get colder, we had our typical like you know, thermostat war problem, uh, like in some houses or some roommates, except for us, it wasn't between like our differences. It was, she was saying, I was not keeping the house warm enough for the ideal temperature for her plants. <laughs> to which I replied by saying, listen, your plants are going to wither a bit because I am not paying a heating bill to keep house plants alive and they're best and they're in, living their best life. And so uh, we, we didn't do that, right? But, but it wasn't what she wanted or it wasn't what the plants wanted. And so they're struggling a little bit right now. Right? That's what Jesus says. Or in Mark chapter two, Jesus heals a man that was paralyzed. He says this, 
but that so that you may know that the Son of Man, he's talking about himself here, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. But he's claiming to forgive sins, which of course to the Jews would be blasphemy. That's why they wanted to kill him, because only God can forgive sins. He says, if you don't believe that I can forgive sins, check this out. He tells this man to stand up and walk. So if I can do that, I can also forgive sins. I'll give you one more. The apostle Peter is on trial with James and John from a couple of religious leaders in Acts chapter 4. This is after Jesus has ascended back into heaven. They're upset that they're telling all these people that Jesus is God. And then Peter says this, Jesus' leading disciple. He says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And so this guy who spends more time with Jesus than pretty much anyone else says, no, this is what Jesus taught us. And so I just want to be very clear this morning. Here's what we see, that Jesus did not claim he was a way to God, but the way, was the way to God. Not a way, not one of, but the. Now, now hear me, um, you don't have to believe Jesus you don't have to agree with Jesus, but what you cannot do is say that he is one of many paths because he himself would not say that. So you don't have to agree that Jesus is the one and only way, but you just need to know that's what Jesus says about himself. That's, what, that's his claim, okay? Uh, it makes me think of a quote. I, I found this years ago. I don't know who, who to attribute to. I don't know who I originally read this from, but, but one quote puts it like this. All religions are basically the same. Except when it comes to the nature of God, the nature of man, sin, salvation, and the afterlife. And what he's talking about there is like, it seems like they're all the same until you realize, oh, like who they actually think God is or the supreme being or the deity in whatever religion is vastly different. Um, the nature of human beings and our relationship with God and how you fix that relationship, vastly different. What sin is and how you get rid of it is vastly different. How you can be saved or forgiven and even what the afterlife looks like, they are all radically different if you spend some time studying them. It's kind of like, you know, if you, uh, if, you, if you know a lot about a certain subject and then somebody makes a comment on something and kind of compares things that aren't true, you can't help but like fix them, right? There, or maybe certain passions or things that you like. Like I think if, for example, I don't know if it was last year or the year before when Popeye's tried to uh, challenge Chick-fil-A for the chicken sandwich, right? And you could say, well, it's bread and chicken. It ain't the same, Right? It ain't the same, right? One's the Lord's chicken and one's not, right? And so they, they had like this little boost for a while. Now I get it. Some of it might be the fact that people at Chick-fil-A, it's actually clean and they're at least like happy to see you there. So maybe that's a lot of it too. But they had this boost. They're the same, but then like you got these loyal fans that say, no, they are actually not the same, right? Or if you're in the South, you know, people like to talk about barbecue. Well, it's all the same. And then you realize, well, there's Eastern and there's Western. There's vinegar, there's sweet. There's Kansas City, there's Texas. Like there's a fight about what actually is good barbecue. Or for some of y'all that moved down from like Michigan, we got any Michiganders in here, right? A lot of you, you had to be, uh, you had to learn that barbecue is not a verb, it is a noun, okay? So hamburgers and hot dogs, not barbecue. That is a cookout, right? If you actually know these things, then you know they're different, right? If you actually know. Um, in fact, I'm like this, maybe the opposite with like pizza and ice cream. To me, they're all the same. Little Caesars, Caesars Papa John's, homemade, like Sure, it's somewhat different. Some of you are like, what? Or like ice cream, like, I don't, I mean, homemade, whatever. It's like kind of, to me, it's like the same. But some people are like, no, it's not, how dare you, right? If you actually know about it, you, you, you realize, hey, they're actually different. Now, of course, the problem with this analogy is that at their core, um, they are the same thing quantitatively. So chicken sandwich, uh, pizza, ice cream. However, again, I just want to emphasize, this is not true when it comes to the world's religions, right? In fact, um, 
There's a thing called the law of non-contradiction, which is that basically means that all religions cannot be true because if you have two things that are contradictory, who God is, how you are forgiven, how you are saved, what the afterlife looks like, if you have two things that are contradictory, they both cannot be true at the same time because truth by definition is exclusive. It either is or it isn't. It either is or it isn't. In fact, can I just tell you, I've got an undergrad degree in religious studies. I've got a master's degree in religious studies. I've been doing this ministry thing for a while now. And all of my studying and being with people, I have actually found only one situation where the law of non-contradiction isn't the case. Ready for this? Everything I've learned. And it is when I get into a disagreement with Christina and I happen to be wrong. It's the only time that two things, so that we both can be right um, at the same time. In fact, uh, Hudson Smith, who was a, a really well-known, renowned religion and philo- uh, religious scholar, he died a couple years ago at the age of 97. Uh, one of the most accomplished and acclaimed scholars of our time. He wrote a lot about religion and philosophy. He has one of his major wor- works was called The World's Religions, which is basically about the largest and the greatest, the most influential religions of our time. And he says this. He says, only Buddha and Jesus so impressed their contemporaries They were asked, not just who are you, but also what are you? What order of belonging or being do you belong to? What do you represent? And so if you take prophets, religious founders of all these various things, there's only two of them that weren't just like, they weren't just like trying to lead a new charge. Although in the case of Jesus, we would say he actually wasn't starting something new. He was just fulfilling what the Old Testament talked about. But we would call him a founder, right? If you're not very, you would call Jesus a founder if you weren't like familiar with how Judaism, Christianity worked. Only two of them were so different that like masses, like a lot of people were like, there's something different about them, right? Again, it's worth noting, however, that of all the founders of the great, more influential, larger religions of our day, none, however, of these founders actually claimed to be the one true God and the only way to God. None of them, except Jesus. Even still, however, something about these two was different and how they got people to follow their teachings, in fact, Tim Keller, who was a pastor, a theologian, he passed away last year in his book, Making Sense of God. He actually comments on this idea of Buddha and Jesus being kind of different. Then he goes on, he says this, but the difficulty for observers comes at this point. For Buddha asserted with great clarity and emphasis that he was not a God or even some angelic divine being. But Jesus took an approach that could not be more different. He repeatedly and continually claimed to be the God the creator of the universe. In the whole history of the world, there is only one person who not only claimed to be God himself, but also got enormous of people, enormous numbers of people to believe it. Only Jesus combines claims of divinity with the most beautiful life of humanity. Of course, if you study these religions and cults over time, there are many people who have claimed to be God. None of their, none of their movements moved, uh, continued after the founder died, except Christianity. So again, I just want to say, Jesus did not claim he was a way to God, but that he was the way to God. That's what Jesus says about himself. Now, now here's what I know, okay? Probably, when we talk about this, we mention this, uh, two of the biggest issues we have this idea of exclusivity, of Jesus being the only way, is that it sounds arrogant and that it sounds mean, right? It might sound arrogant and it might sound mean. So if I can quickly just address those two things. Uh, first, some of you might be familiar with the story of the blind man and the elephant. You have all these blind guys and they're touching the elephant and one's like, oh, he's, he's like a spear or a snake or a tree or a wall, depending on what they touch. And then this, this prince wakes up and he says, no, you guys are all wrong. You need to put all the parts together to find out what it's like. You're actually touching an elephant. 
And we, and, we, and we read that story, it's like, oh, that sounds like religion. It's like they're all different. They're all you're leading. You got to figure out what's going on. The problem with that story is twofold. One, if you put all these parts together that these blind men kind of thought, spear, tree, wall, if you put them together, you do not get an elephant. The second problem with that analogy is that somebody has to claim to see the elephant to tell people what's actually truth. In fact, Leslie Newbegin, who was a Christian philosopher, he put it this way. There is an appearance of humility in the protestation that the truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp, which is kind of the story of the blind man and the elephant. But if this is used to invalidate all claims to discern the truth, it is in fact an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all others, right? To say all religions are the same is to say, well, you know the truth and other people are wrong. He goes on to say, we have to ask, what is the absolute vantage ground from which you claim to be able to relativize all the absolute claims these different scriptures make? So if your claim, if you do think they're all kind of going to the same place, all religions are saying the same thing, you have to be able to say, hey, I know all these thinkers and founders and philosophers, you guys are saying different things, but I know something that all of you don't. Right? So, so whether it's exclusive or whatever you think about however you get to God, everything you could put actually under the category of arrogant because somebody has to claim to know the truth. Now, at the same time, it, if we're honest, especially in our culture today, it sounds mean. It sounds mean to say, I'm the only way. But can I just say this? Um, the problem, I think, is not whether or not it sounds mean or too exclusive to say that Jesus is the only way to God. Because Jesus, to say Jesus isn't the only way is just as exclusive. You are still excluding somebody claiming to know the truth. Instead, what matters is whether or not what Jesus said is true. That's what really matters. Is it true or is it not? In fact, can I just say this? Um, in our day and age today, what you often hear people say is that I am spiritual but not religious. Like, I'm a spiritual. And it sounds very uh, tolerant. It sounds very inclusive, right? I just don't, I don't think just one religion is right, but I'm open to something, some being out there. Uh, so I'm spiritual um, but not religious. And it's a good, again, like I said, it's a good, tolerant-sounding stance to take. But can I just show you something this morning? that do you know that there is someone else who also wants you to be quote-unquote spiritual? And his name is Satan. His name is Satan. Now, how can I say that? How can I say that? Well, here's, here's what we know. If you are open to all spirits, then you will also be open to false and demonic spirits as well. Now, if you're like, oh, he's getting weird. The demons. Let, let's just read, let's just see what the scripture says, okay? First John 4, this is written by John, one of Jesus' closest disciples. He says this, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In other words, what I think John would caution us against in our culture is don't be open, in other words, to any spirituality to any ideology, but rather what you should do is test the spirits because according to scripture, there are holy spirits and there are unholy spirits. There are holy spirits and there are unholy spirits. And so the question becomes then, how do I know which ones are right, which ones are wrong? How do I test them? Well, John continues by saying this in verse two, this is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now it is already in the world. 
So the question is, how do you know is this, if this spirit is from God or is not from God? Well, is the teaching and the ideology, is it leading you towards worshiping Jesus, the God-made flesh? If yes, the spirit is from God. And if no, then at least according to scripture, at its root, it is a demonic spirit, a demonic influence from Satan leading you away from him. Again, remember, Satan's whole goal is to keep you from walking through the only door, Jesus, that can lead you to life. That's his whole goal, so that you can be apart from him just like he is. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul also picks up on this. And so he's writing about food sacrifice to idols and like people would like make these sacrifices to idols. And basically he says, listen, they're sacrificing to idols that are not real. Like they're, they're not real. They are not God. But there are spirits behind these idols that are real. He says this in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, no, in other words, they're not real, like actual gods themselves, but I do say what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Again, according to Paul, these people are worshiping non-existent gods. However, the spirit that is leading them to do so is demonic. It is not from God. And so biblically speaking, can I just say this? Biblically speaking, Satan is good with you following any religious or spiritual ideology, be it a false religion or horoscopes or Ouija boards or, or whatever it is, you name it. Anything that keeps you from Christ is Satan approved. Anything that keeps you from Christ, he is fully endorsing and is on board with. This is why in John chapter 10, Jesus is teaching one of his seven I am statements in the gospel of John, saying he is God, and here, here, here's why he's come, and here's what he is accomplishing. And in John chapter 10, verse 9, he says this. He says, I am the gate, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. He says, I'm the gate. And then in verse 10, he says, the Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might find life. Now, the analogy he's given there is like a sheep pen. And there's a gate from the sheep pen that they can come and they can go. Now, so, so some translations actually translate verse 9, the door. It's kind of a more modern paraphrase, if you will, if you don't have sheep, which probably none of us here in this room do. If you do, let me know, because that's awesome. Um, right? So I am the gate, or, or I am the door. I am the one by which people come in and be saved. In other words, here's what Jesus is emphatic about in the Gospels. He says this, that nobody enters except through this door, this being him. Nobody enters, experience the grace and mercy of God except through this door. Now, can I say this again? This makes us feel uncomfortable. And I think the reason it makes us feel uncomfortable is because it feels exclusive. It feels exclusive. And by that, I think what, it, what we're really saying is that it feels unfair. I think at its root, what we're really uncomfortable with is that it just, it feels unfair. Like that's it, like, like Jesus is the only way. Now, now I want to mention, maybe want to say this. I did tell maybe um, a little white lie earlier. When I said that all religions were different, they actually do, though, at their core, have one thing in common. 
right? Their thing in common is here is what you must do to get gods or the gods or the divine being or whatever their claim thing is. Here's what you must do to get the gods to love you and to get to the good place when you die. I mean, that, that is kind of like overarching. Now, what that looks like and who they are and what happens and how you do it, radically different. But at the end, it's like, here you are. Here's your issue. Here's what you got to do to fix it. Like their commonality is here's what you do. And if you do them well enough, you're in. If you can do it well enough, you're in. Except, of course, there is one that is different, and that is the way of Jesus, where it's not what you've done, but what he has done for you. Radically different. Maybe another analogy. You can think of all religions as like a ladder, a ladder going up that you have to climb up and get to the top before you die to make it in. Now, can I tell you, Christianity also has a ladder. The difference is that in Christianity, God comes down all the way to the bottom of that ladder, puts you on his back, and brings you up. That's the difference, right? And so nobody enters except through the door. And also at the same time, Jesus also says this, that everybody who gets in passes through the door. So if you experience the grace and mercy, the love of Christ, if you are welcomed into the kingdom of God, you enter, not by you trying really hard, or you promising to be better in the future, but by what Jesus has done for you and by your trust and repentance in him. Can I say this? Um, the, the radical inclusivity, inclusivity of Christianity is actually quite astounding. Not that that's exclusivity, but it's inclusive. Um, for example, certain religions will tell you that it is uh, preferable that you be a certain ethnicity, gender, or people group. So uh, like Hinduism in some Eastern religions, that you live actually in a certain geographical area and you actually have a certain ethnicity. That's what they tell you. Yet Christianity tells us there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female that all are welcome to enter through the blood-stained door of Jesus. doesn't matter who you are, and yes, we have differences, but your salvation is not about what you look like or where you live. In some religions, uh, it is preferable that you know and can read the language that the religion was founded in so that you can read their sacred text in their ancient language so you can really know what it's saying. So Islam would be an example of this. Now, I'm not knocking understanding. I mean, the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. I think there are great things to learn to study from it, However, you don't have to be able to read Hebrew and Greek to know the love of God, right? In fact, in Christianity, we are told that every tribe and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. That's what we're told. Um, in some religions and philosophies, it is preferable that you be really smart and studious and logical so that you can understand uh, secret and complicated things and reason your way in. Yet in Christianity, Scripture tells us that God has chosen what is weak and foolish in the world to shame the wise. That's what it tells us. Um, in some religions, it is preferable that you are affluent and wealthy so that you can afford to give large offerings and make pilgrimages to certain holy sites to experience God or to buy certain products on certain holy days to pre please the gods. Yet in Christianity, the rich and the poor, the upwardly mobile and the down and out are welcome to pass through the door that is Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures teach us. Also, can I also say this? It is popular today to think, well, I don't know. I think all good people go to heaven. That, that's, where, that's kind of what I'm thinking of. Here's the problem. Who defines what is good? Who defines it? Is it you? Is it the, the current year that you live in? Is it the current country that you live in? Is it that like your stuff isn't that bad because you know your motivations, but if someone else does the exact same thing to you, um, they're bad? Like, like who defines what is good and who defines what is good enough? 
But even more than that, can I just say, do you know how exclusive that actually sounds? If you say only good people go to heaven, do you know who that excludes? Bad people. It excludes bad people. It excludes sinners. And therefore, by God's perfect standard, it would have to exclude you. It would have to. Uh, but the scripture, and even in scriptures, in, 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 the, in the book of Romans, Paul says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we're all bad people. Like if only good people go to heaven, that is not good for you and it is certainly not good for me. But yet in, in Christianity, whether you have been good or bad, righteous or unrighteous, sinner or someone fleeing sin, Jesus, we are told, is a friend of tax collectors and sinners and welcomes any bad person who would come to him. He welcomes, and in fact, he invites them. The bad people that you say, well, only good people go to heaven that you would say don't deserve it, Jesus says, you can come on in. That's what Jesus says. And so I just want to say this, every religion, every ideology, every philosophy is exclusive. And ironically, the exclusivity of Christ is more inclusive than any other system that you could come up with because in Christianity, you don't have to do anything, you just need to believe in someone. You don't have to do anything, you just need to believe in the one who has done it for you. That's what we have to do. Now, uh, if I could say maybe one more question or objection that we have with this idea of exclusivity when it comes to Jesus. Because you might be tracking and say, hey, maybe I haven't thought about that way or that makes sense. Like it's open to anyone, gender, ethnicity, no matter what you've done, no matter how, what's been done to you, that you can receive the grace of God, not because of your effort, but because of his. Like, okay, I can, I can, you know, I can jive with that. But, but, but there's a question. What about people who have never heard of Christ? And if this is true, that Jesus came to love and forgive and give grace, what about those who have not heard? Uh, to say this, there's a, lot of, you know, there's a lot that you could say. Quickly, I just want to say this. Um, any question that we ask about God as Jesus followers, we should filter through the lens of God's word and his character that is revealed to us through his word. And so I just want to say, there are a couple of things that scripture clearly teaches us about God. Quickly, three things. One, that God is good. Psalm 85, 6 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. So we know that God is good. Of course we know that God is good because God came in the form of a man named Jesus to live the life we could not live, die the death that we deserve to die, uh, ascended, uh, rose from the dead three days later, later to take the substitute and the penalty of our sins and to rise victorious over sin, demons, and darkness. God is good. We know that. We also know that God is just. Uh, likely, I think, behind some of the angst about the question of people who have never heard is that it seems unfair if, if you haven't heard of Christ, right? It seems unfair. Like, well, what, do you, what do you do? In fact, in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, he's writing, at least in this part of his letter, about whether or not people will be judged by the laws and standards they have never heard of. So he's writing about people who have never heard about the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament law of the Hebrew Bible. And then he says this in Romans 2, verse 12. For all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, he is saying that God is not going to judge you by standards that you are not aware of. That's what Paul's saying here in Romans 2. However... Each person is responsible for the amount of revelation they received and what they know. 
right? God is just and fair. Is someone actually desiring to want to know him, or are they, or, or are they, are they not? Last thing we would say is this. Scripture shows us that God is love. John 3, 16, a lot of you are familiar with this verse. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son, Jesus, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's why God came. He is love. In fact, you guys remember the name game Hide and Seek uh, when you're a kid, or maybe if you're an adult and you like come home from work and you're like, let's play Hide and Seek, and you hide somewhere really good so your kids can't find you for five minutes. Uh, not that I've ever done that. Um, but in the game Hide and Seek, right? All other religious ideological, ideological systems have God hiding and you seeking. God's hiding and you seeking. You gotta figure it out, you gotta do better, you gotta do good, and if you can find him, you're good. Yet in the scriptures, we see that you hide and God seeks. You hide and God seeks. From the very beginning, like the first story we get of Adam and Eve, they sin and what happens? They hide, God seeks. Does Adam go looking for God or does God go looking for Adam? We hide, God seeks. That's actually what happens, which is why Jesus says this in Luke chapter 19. He says, for the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. That is why Jesus came. In fact, uh, there's an example. Um, the, the tone of, I'll say this. The tone of scripture seems to be that God will reveal and draw him to anyone to him who actually seeks him and desires him. That's what scripture seems to be showing us. In fact, you actually read a story about this. I won't read this for time, but in Acts chapter 10, again, this is the, the story of the beginning of the early church, of the gospel is being spread. And there's a mo good moral guy named Cornelius who is not a Christian, but he wants to honor God, and, he, and he's praying at his house. He's praying at his house. God sees that he is sincerely seeking him, so he sends the apostle Peter to his house to reveal to him the one door, Jesus, that this man and his family must pass through to have a right relationship with God. In fact, you hear this a lot today. People maybe in closed off countries, a Muslim or otherwise, who sincerely want to know God, but have no one to tell them about Jesus. And they have these dreams and these visions. Now, of course, you could all say they're anecdotal and they're all lying. You could. I actually experienced this myself when I, uh, my one year, one summer when I was in college, I spent the summer in Lebanon in the Middle East. And I remember we spent two days at this, uh, at this seminary in Lebanon because they're a little bit more religiously tolerant in Lebanon, especially in Beirut than, than a lot of the other countries around there. And hearing stories of guys like, they're all the same. They're having these dreams. This man shows up. His face is so white that they can't make out his face, but they somehow know it's Jesus. They somehow know it's Jesus. I remember having a conversation with one guy. He was talking about how he got, he basically had some of these dreams. He started following Jesus. His mom finds out. His mom says, do not tell your father or your brothers or they will kill you. They will kill you. It comes out that he's a Christian. He has to flee his country and his community. He's in seminary right now. This is about 15 years ago. And he says, when I'm done, I'm going back. Whatever happens to me, I am going back. That's what we see, that, that God wants to reveal himself to those who seek him. That's what he wants. So as I end, um, let me just make it practical in this way. We've seen this morning that no, if nobody gets in except through the door, which is what we've seen, Nobody, at least according to Jesus, you can disagree with that, but just know you're disagreeing with Jesus. If everybody gets in that walks through the door, that everybody's welcome, here's what this means for us, that we have to tell everybody about the door. That's what this means. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have to tell those in your life about who this door is that leads to life. So as I close, I want to speak briefly to Christians 
and then to non-Christians, okay? To those who are followers of Jesus, and then to those who might be wrestling with who this Jesus guy is. First, to, to those who are followers of Jesus, in the seat back in front of you or in the front row in the Bibles, you'll see one of these cards. Can you just go ahead and grab it? Everyone just go ahead and grab one out, right? Just go ahead and pull it out. On one end, there's like an invite card. On the other side, there's an, it says this. I commit to praying every day for an opportunity to love and share the Jesus with who? Now, there's also pins in every seat. So you, we got that for you now. Can I encourage you like, to fill that out? Like not when you get home, not when you, but like now. Who in your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, should you pray for? I think sometimes you're like, man, I don't like to pray. God doesn't answer my prayers. Well, hey, you have no problem praying for this, right? If you, right? But challenge yourself. I commit to pray every day for an opportunity to love and share Jesus with. Can I encourage you to make it someone who lives here? Not someone, even if it's a family member or friend that you talk to once a month via text or email or, or whatever, DMs. Someone that you actually see on a consistent basis in person that, that you would pray that God would give you the opportunity to love and to care for them. That he might give you the opportunity to share his love with them. And can I just, one more thing. Uh, next week, we're, we're continuing our Controversial Jesus series, Gender and Sexuality. And then in two weeks, or last week, we're talking about Controversial Grace. If there's a great, I think every Sunday is great. That is a great Sunday to invite your, maybe your unsaved friend to. Controversial grace. What is this idea of grace in our culture that we cancel everybody and that we turn our backs on everybody? You say one wrong thing and you're done. We're going to talk about the abounding grace and love of Jesus. February 4th, two weeks. My encouragement, write their name down, pray every day, and ask one of those things you can pray for. God, would you give me the opportunity to invite them to experience your grace that we're going to talk about in two weeks? That's my encouragement to you. Who do you know that needs to know about the door? Now, if you're here and you're not quite sure about this Jesus thing, um, you're interested in Jesus, but not sure. Here's what you probably are thinking. And if you're watching online, right, here's what you're probably thinking. That if you approach the door of Jesus and you kind of like crack it open, like you just kind of look in there, see what's going on, that God, when he would see the door, he would look around at the door, he would see it was you, and he'd slam that door in his face. And he finds out who's trying to get in, he'd say, get out, right, because of what you've done or what you believe or what's been done to you. You think if God saw you trying to approach him, he'd say, no, 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 no. You need to figure some stuff out before you can come to me. Can I just tell you, that is not what Jesus says. Revelation chapter three, last thing I'll read, this is what Jesus said. He says, see, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That's what Jesus says. And so, so some of you right now, man, God's knocking. It could be like this small thing the last couple of weeks, or it could be like, man, you know that he is inviting you in. And if you would open that door, he would not slam it in your face. If you would open that door, he's saying, man, come on in. Man, come on in. My son, my daughter, welcome home. That's what he would say. That's exactly what he would say. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, after I'm done here in a second, we're going to worship uh, this God who accepts us right where we are and changes us. And then we're going to celebrate baptism of people who are going to publicly express to people what God has done in their life. They trusted and believed Jesus as Lord, that they entered through the door and found grace. Listen, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that is your invitation. The gospel is the good news of what Christ has done for you, not for what you promise to do better of in the future. And so we're gonna celebrate with people who have done just that. Would you pray with me? And then we're gonna continue worshiping together.